Amen. Thank you, brother. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. I'll read that passage for us, and I will pray one more time. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Saints, please join me one more time in prayer. Father, we need your help as we come to your word. Would you incline our hearts to your testimonies? Would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law? Would you give us unified hearts in the fear of your name? Would you satisfy us with your steadfast love, with the glory of your son Jesus this morning? Help me by your Holy Spirit as I preach. Help us by your Holy Spirit as we listen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, as we've studied through Mark's gospel, Jesus has traveled around Galilee, and he's encountered a very mixed reception. Some have heard and followed Jesus in faith. Some have opposed Jesus openly. Some have become very enthusiastic about Jesus, but as the narrative unfolds, it's clear that they don't actually understand what he's about. Some think Jesus is crazy, or even that he's demon-possessed. Well, in our sermon text this morning, just as I've read, just as you've heard, Mark tells us the story of Jesus' visit to his hometown in Nazareth, where he grew up. And we might imagine that of all the towns in Galilee that Jesus would visit, Nazareth would be the one to receive Jesus positively. Surely these people who grew up with Jesus would be more disposed to believe in him than the general public. But what we see in our passage is that Jesus is not the Messiah that his hometown was expecting. And because he didn't meet their expectations, their desires, their thinking, the Nazarenes don't believe. There at the end of verse 3 in our passage, we're told that Nazareth took offense at Jesus. You might also translate that phrase as they stumbled over Jesus. Verse 6 makes clear that this is a stumbling of unbelief. Our passage this morning is, I think, a warning against stumbling over Jesus when he's not what we expected. Our passage is a warning against unbelief. Four points in our outline this morning. Four points. First, the reasons for unbelief. Second, the result of unbelief. 
A third, the remarkable nature of unbelief. And fourth and finally, the remedy for our unbelief. I'll give those to you again as we progress through the text. So first point this morning are the reasons for unbelief. What are the reasons that Jesus' hometown fails to believe in him? What are the reasons that they stumble over him? Well, two reasons that I want us to see in the text this morning. The first reason that Nazareth doesn't believe in Jesus is because Jesus is counterintuitive. Jesus is counterintuitive. That might sound strange, but stick with me. So after Jesus arrives in Nazareth, as we've seen him do before, Jesus heads to the synagogue and he begins to teach. And as Jesus is teaching, his teaching makes an impression that we've seen it make before. You might remember back in Mark chapter 1, Mark records that Jesus enters a synagogue in Capernaum. And as Jesus starts teaching, Mark says this in Mark chapter 1, 22, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Mark 1, 22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Right? As Jesus is teaching in this synagogue, his authority... His divine power shines in his words, such that those who hear him are astonished. And that was true of Jesus' teaching in Capernaum back in chapter 1. It's true of Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 6. There in verse 2, look at the passage, it says, And on the Sabbath Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. The self-authenticating divine words of Jesus make an impression. They astonish. From the parallel account in Luke's gospel, which Deborah read for us earlier, it's clear that initially the Nazarenes actually respond positively to some of the things that Jesus is saying. You might have noticed Luke includes several details about this episode that Mark a doesn't. Mark seems to have not mentioned that they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. That might be kind of a shocking omission to us, but it shouldn't bother us at all. Because neither Mark nor Luke are trying to write the book, everything interesting that ever happened in the life of Jesus. Right? John tells us that book is too big to be written. Instead, Mark and Luke are very selective in the material that they include in order to make different but true and compatible uh, points. If we imagine Jesus is in the synagogue for a few hours, it's very easy to see how both what Mark says and what Luke says are true about this incident. And one thing that's very, very clear from both Mark's account and from Luke's account uh, is that the initial astonishment of Nazareth at the teaching of Jesus sours into unbelief. Uh, look at the list of questions there in verse 2. The Nazarenes ask, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Well, in one sense, those are perfectly legitimate questions. It's understandable that Nazareth would wonder where Jesus got the stuff he was doing and teaching. In fact, the scriptures give us the answers to all three of those questions. Where did Jesus get these things? Well, two answers. One, as the eternal divine son of God, he's had these things from all of eternity. And as the anointed human Messiah son of God, 
He received anointing and empowerment by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. That's where Jesus got these things. Next question, what is the wisdom given to him? Well, interestingly, in the book of Isaiah, we read a prophecy about the servant of God, the Messiah, being awakened morning by morning and taught by God from the Scriptures. Where did Jesus get this wisdom? As his Father taught him from the Scriptures by the Spirit. A third question, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Again, the same two answers we saw. Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God, and he's the messianic human Son of God, anointed and empowered by the Spirit. That's how he does these mighty works. So it's not wrong that Nazareth would have genuine questions about Jesus. The problem is that from the context, it's very clear that that's not what's going on. These are not good faith questions that they humbly desire answers to. They're not just curious about Jesus. From the context, it's clear that they're expressing disbelief in Jesus because he doesn't match their intuitions. They find him to be counterintuitive. What does counterintuitive mean? Well, our intuitions are kind of our deep feelings about what is right or what must be true. And the Nazarenes here seem to have intuitions that for Jesus, this guy that grew up with them, to have this measure of power and authority from God, it just feels counterintuitive, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem right that this guy who went to high school with me would be claiming to be the Messiah. You can imagine some of them thinking, like, this guy's from the same small town that we are, right? His sister lives down the street. So how come he's talking to us about being the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies? We remember when this guy was a carpenter. And Nazareth rejects Jesus because he is counterintuitive. He wasn't what they were expecting. He rubbed them the wrong way. That might seem like kind of a trivial point to make, but can you see, this actually has everything to do with our attitude toward Jesus today. So listen, if you read the Bible for very long, if you're paying attention, you will very likely find things in the Bible that rub you in an uncomfortable way you will very likely find things in the Bible that seem to you counterintuitive. So if you're a Christian, many times when you're reading the Bible, its truth just resonates with your soul by the Holy Spirit. You read it and you say, yes, that is true. That is right. That is good, right? The Holy Spirit is, is producing that recognition in you. Other times, even if you're a Christian, right, this happens to me, when you're reading the Bible, you'll find things in the Bible that don't match your intuitions. You find things in the Bible that, that seem difficult to you. They rub you in an uncomfortable way. Right? Maybe we find difficult what the Bible says about sin or about God's wrath against sin or about God's sovereignty or about sexuality or about gender. There may be points when what you feel jars with what Scripture says, points where God's Word seems to you to be 
counterintuitive. Well, this story about Jesus' hometown is a challenge to us. When that happens, will we prioritize our own intuitions, our own feelings and opinions, or will we trust the words of Jesus? Friend, what will you do when you find that Jesus and his teachings are not exactly what we expected? Will the things that we find counterintuitive blind us to the reality that Jesus works and his words clearly reveal that he is the God-man? It's understanding that Nazareth would ha- it's understandable that Nazareth would have questions. None of their questions undermine the clarity of the revelation that this guy in their synagogue is the Messiah. His works and his words abundantly manifest that to them. And so the question for us is when we have questions, will our questions obscure what God has made otherwise very clear? Or by grace, will we adopt the posture of faith seeking understanding? Again, it's very helpful to remember that the confusing questions that the Nazarenes have, there are answers to those questions, right? Knowing what we know as Mark's readers, we want to tell the Nazarenes, wait, 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 wait. these things that are confusing you, there are good answers, right? If you knew what we as the readers know, your intuitions would be different, right? Your intuitions might line up with what Jesus is saying. So brothers and sisters, is it possible that when we find the word of God to be off-putting or challenging or counterintuitive, is it possible that we're in the same position? Is it possible that there's more to learn that would vindicate the truth and the rightfulness of what God is saying? In my own life, my intuitions are not yet always 100% of the time perfectly lined up with the Bible. Sometimes I still read in the Bible things that challenge me. But I can tell you by God's grace, as I've grown, some things in the Bible that used to feel hard I now can see that they are true and beautiful. They were always true and beautiful, right? It was always a me problem. It is never a Bible problem. It is always a me problem. But as we trust in God, God brings our intuitions into line with his word. He renews our minds. He gives us the mind of Christ. The foolishness of Nazareth to reject Jesus when he's counterintuitive, warns us against unbelief. First reason for unbelief is that Jesus is counterintuitive. Remember, we have four points. First point is the reason for unbelief. Two reasons for unbelief, so two subpoints. First one is Jesus is counterintuitive. Second reason for unbelief is that Jesus is familiar seems like Nazareth rejects Jesus because Jesus is really familiar to them. That seems to lie behind the questions that they ask there in verse 3. Look there in verse 3. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? It seems like the familiarity of Jesus is a stumbling block here. Because Jesus is something we grew up with every day, the Nazarenes seem confused about why he's so different from the rest of his family and from everyone else who ever came out of Nazareth. 
And that matches Jesus' comment there in verse 4 when he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. There's something of the same idea of our saying that familiarity breeds contempt. The Nazarenes seem to feel Jesus can't be all that big of a deal because we're so used to him. He used to be my carpenter, my stonemason. Jesus' sister lives down the street. These people's familiarity with Jesus blinds them to his uniqueness and glory. And friends, here as well, the unbelief of Nazareth is a caution to us. There is a danger that being familiar with Jesus might blind us to his uniqueness and glory. Are there any kids here in the room this morning? I see some kids. Any kids? Waves. Thank you for the waves. Very good. Good to see you kids. So glad you guys are here. Much love to all the kids. Very glad that you're here. Kids, listen, if you belong to a family that takes you to church, if you belong to a family that teaches you about Jesus, and I know that you do, that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. I cannot think of a bigger blessing than a family that would teach you about Jesus. It is an amazing gift to hear about Jesus growing up. But kids, listen, listen. If you grow up hearing about Jesus week after week after week, again and again and again, you might be tempted to think, because I hear about Jesus all the time, he's really not that big of a deal. right? Because I'm always reading the Bible. I read it at home. I read it at homeschool or my, my school. I, my parents read it to me. Right? It's just the Bible all the time. You might be tempted to think that it's really not that amazing or important. Well, kids, listen. I pray that you would never forget how wonderful Jesus is. I pray that you would always remember that Jesus is most wonderful, that he is the best. For you would always remember that he is the son of God, that he's the only one who can save you from your sins, that following him is more important than anything else, that he is the only thing in the whole world worth living for. I pray, kids, that God helps you remember how amazing Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, it's not just a warning for kids We, too, risk becoming blind to the glory of Jesus due to our familiarity with him. What are the two reasons we've seen in this text that lie behind Nazareth's unbelief? Warnings to us. First, when Jesus is counterintuitive. And second, when Jesus becomes familiar. Well, if those are the reasons for Nazareth's unbelief, what is, second point, uh, the result of their unbelief? Second point this morning, the result of unbelief. Well, in brief, it's that Nazareth misses out on the grace of Jesus. The result of Nazareth's unbelief is that they miss out on the grace of Jesus. Look there in verse 5. Mark writes this in verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
Now that is a really intriguing Bible verse. So first thing to note, did you notice Jesus only healing a few sick people is like nothing to write home about, right? If you ever healed one sick person miraculously, right, you never stop talking about it. Every party, you'd be like, hey, were you there when I, you know, when I healed that sick guy miraculously with my hands, right? But for Jesus, only to heal a few sick people is like, well, you know, he didn't really get going. That's remarkable. Second, and maybe more puzzling about this verse, verse 5, what does it mean that Jesus, quote, could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief? What's going on there? Right? Is this like in that movie Elf when Santa's sleigh won't fly because the clausometer is low because people don't believe in Santa and people need to believe in Santa so that the sleigh will fly? No, it's not like that at all. Elf, very charming Christmas movie. That is not what is happening at all. What is very, very clear from the context of Mark's gospel is that verse 5 does not mean that Jesus' power is somehow dependent upon or derived from human faith. So think, for example, of the calming of the storm in Mark chapter 4. Jesus specifically rebukes the disciples, don't you have any faith? Right? So they don't have faith. But what does Jesus do while they are not having faith? He calms the storm by his miraculous power, right? He doesn't need their faith to juice up his power. It's very important to note that because especially among prosperity gospel teachers, faith can sometimes be viewed as having a power in itself, Uh, Faith is a power uh, by which we cause God to accomplish things that he hasn't actually promised he's going to accomplish. So this past week, I I heard in the news about a pastor in Haiti leading a group of church members in a really dangerous part of the city on a protest. And gang members opened fire on these church members. Well, it was reported that the pastor told his followers that they were bulletproof. And he said that those who were injured had no faith. That's ridiculous. That is not how faith works in the Bible. You cannot use faith to force God to do things that he hasn't promised to do. I was reading the biography of R.C. Sproul earlier this week, and the biographer wrote about a man whom R.C. met who was very, very sick. And this man had been working with a group of other Christians. And these Christians had told him that the reason that he was sick is because he didn't have enough faith to be healed. Thinks, what a hurtful and pernicious lie. That's not how faith works. Faith does not manipulate God. He is not dependent on faith in his omnipotence. That's what verse 5 doesn't mean. What does it mean? Well, it seems that Mark's point here is that faith is the way that God has decided that we should receive his grace. Faith is the way that God has decided that we should receive his grace. Faith is how we grab hold of or receive the grace God offers to us in Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. So think about the two times in Mark that we've seen someone held up as an example of faith. I mentioned these two individuals last week. First, in the story of the paralyzed man, 
We read about the paralytic and his friends. They're commended as having faith. Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, what did his seeing their faith look like? How did he see their faith? Well, their faith was evident in a resolve to get mercy from Jesus. It it was a resolve. I need him. I need his help. I need his forgiveness. That's what faith is. What's the second example of faith we've seen so far? It's the bleeding woman from Mark chapter 5. What does this woman's faith look like? She says, I have to get to Jesus I have to receive help and mercy from him. I know that if I can just touch his garment, so clean, so holy, so mighty is he, that I will be healed, right? Faith is grabbing hold of Jesus in need for mercy. Faith is how we receive the mercy that God promises to us in Jesus. So when Mark says that Jesus could do no mighty work there, I don't know, but it could be. Uh, that people's unbelief meant that many didn't come to him for a mighty work. Because if you had faith, you'd come. If you don't have faith, you won't. But in any case, what we need to see is that the result of unbelief is missing out on the grace of Jesus. Unbelief in Jesus, unbelief in his saving death and resurrection, it cuts us off from salvation from sin. Even for those of us who do belong to Jesus, our unbelief, right, it hinders our ability to enjoy all that God has given to us in Christ. Unbelief robs us of close communion with the Lord. Unbelief robs us of motivation to serve God. Unbelief robs us of peace. Unbelief robs us of joy. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us this. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one, right? Faith or believing what God has said to us, that is what protects us from the temptations and the lies that Satan loves to hurl at us. So when we refuse to trust what God says to us, it's like a soldier flinging his shield away, right? It leaves us sitting ducks, open targets for temptation and lies and misery. A Christian, when you're fighting against sin, you need to believe that God gives his children grace, not to be perfect in this life, but to grow and to have real, not perfect, but real victory over sin. If you don't think that God will help you put sin to death, you're not going to be able to put sin to death. And that's not because of the power of positive thinking. It's because the way that we grab hold of God's grace to us is by trusting what he says to us. In our passage this morning, we see reasons for unbelief, and we see that the result of unbelief is missing out on the grace that God offers to us in Jesus, because faith is how we grab hold of him and all that he gives to us. A third, this morning we need to see in our passage the remarkable nature of unbelief. The remarkable nature of unbelief. There in verse 2 of our passage, uh, those who heard Jesus teach in Nazareth were astonished. Jesus stood out to them as something out of the ordinary, something truly remarkable. 
Well, down there in verse 6, after their astonishment has turned to rejection, right, we're, we're told that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. So surely Mark is speaking here of Jesus with respect to his human nature. Again, as throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is truly God and truly man. And with respect to his divinity, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. With respect to his humanity, it's clear that Jesus is not omniscient. He learns things. The Gospels are very clear about that. The human nature of Jesus is perfect, but it's not infinite, unlike his divine nature. And as a perfectly clear-sighted man, as a perfectly clear-thinking person, Jesus finds that the truly remarkable thing in this story the thing that's truly shocking, the thing more amazing than, wow, I can't believe the, home, the Messiah grew up in my hometown. The thing that's more shocking than that is that people would encounter him, his works and his words, and not believe. That's what's truly surprising to Jesus. One would think, Jesus thinks, that when someone shows up claiming to be the Messiah, performing the kinds of works that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do, exercising power over demons and death and disease, teaching with wisdom and authority never before heard of. One would think that the people who had been waiting for the Messiah their whole lives would believe, but they don't believe. Jesus, he marvels at their unbelief. And friends, so often today, though God has spoken so plainly in his work of creation, in the witness of nature, and in his word, the witness of scripture, so often we don't believe. This begs the question, what is so wrong with us that we don't believe? That we encounter Jesus in his word and respond with unbelief. Those in Nazareth, they did have questions about Jesus, and sometimes we have genuine, honest questions about Jesus, and that's good. But the Bible suggests that ultimately our problem is not exclusively an intellectual problem. Ultimately, we don't ultimately stumble over the counterintuitiveness and the familiarity of Jesus because we can't figure it out. In John's gospel in chapter 5, Jesus is speaking with the Jewish leadership and he says this to them. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe, Jesus says, when the glory that you want is the glory from other people and not the glory that comes from God? In other, in other words, Jesus says, the reason that our hearts don't believe is that our hearts want other things in the place of God. Our hearts want in God's place, as a God substitute, other things. Right? Our problem is not ultimately a lack of evidence. It's not ultimately a lack of intelligence. The problem is that our hearts don't love the God that we know is there. And so we don't want to trust him. We don't want to believe the things about him that expose who we are. The final verse of our passage speaks about the remarkable nature 
of unbelief rooted deep in a problem that we cannot fix, the problem of our hearts. We've seen the reasons for unbelief, the result of unbelief, and the remarkable nature of unbelief. Fourth and finally this morning, what is the remedy for our unbelief? What is the remedy for our unbelief? Well, our passage itself doesn't give the answer, but we get a glimmer of the answer there in verse 3. There, as the unbelieving Nazarenes are listing Jesus' family members, they say, is not this the brother of James? Is not this the brother of James? Let me tell you about James, the brother of Jesus, for just a minute. James was the child, the church tradition tells us, of Joseph and Mary. James would have grown up in Nazareth with Jesus. And James, while Jesus was on earth, before he died and rose, did not believe in Jesus. Our passage suggests that. The Gospel of John confirms that. James had no shortage of reasons to believe in Jesus, and still he didn't. But in God's sovereign mercy... God used the rejection of James, the rejection of Nazareth, the rejection of Israel to lead Jesus up a hill outside Jerusalem to die on a cross to pay for the sins of his brother, James. To pay for the sins of James' unbelief. To pay for the sins of James' hostile heart, Toward God. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, and the Apostle Paul tells us that after Jesus rose, after he appeared to the apostles, then he appeared to James. The risen Lord Jesus, James' brother, showed himself, revealed his glory to James. Did you know the Bible teaches that some people saw the resurrected Jesus and still doubted? By grace, not James. God, in his sovereign mercy, gave James faith, and James' eyes were opened. God gave James faith that his brother Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. God gave James faith so steadfast that tradition tells us that James was eventually stoned to death for being a servant of his brother, Jesus Christ. In God's sovereign mercy, God gave James the faith that he needed to be saved. Remember earlier we said that faith is how we receive or lay hold of God's grace. And we said that the result of unbelief is missing out on the grace of Jesus. Well, that's true, but if that were the whole story, all of us would totally miss out on the grace of Jesus. Because the process has to start when God, in his sovereign mercy, gives us faith so that we might grab hold of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, listen, this is why you're a Christian. Because the risen Lord Jesus appeared to James, and then he appeared to others, and they spoke to others about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And just as Jesus died to pay for the sins of those who would trust in him and rose from the dead in new life, so now the message about Jesus carries with it the power to make dead and unbelieving hearts alive by faith in Christ. For 2,000 years now, God has been giving faith to sinners through the words about Jesus the words spread by men like James. The Apostle Paul says it in, like this in Romans chapter 10. He says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Remember in the Gospel of John, as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus says to this dead man, Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the life necessary to obey Jesus' words, where does it come from? It comes from his words, right? Faith comes by hearing. Faith is in what we hear, and it comes to us when God's Spirit attends the reading, the preaching, the understanding of his word with faith to save, to give new life. What is the ultimate remedy for unbelief? Ultimately, it's the sovereign work of God that gives faith through his life-giving word, the gospel. Let me close with this. What if you find yourself wrestling with unbelief, either as a Christian or someone who knows himself not to be a Christian? What do you do? What should you do when you are wrestling with unbelief in what God has said to you in his word? you throw up your hands and say, well, because faith is the sovereign gift of God, there's nothing for me to do. And no, let me close with this. Later in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, we read about a man who delivers one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. Uh, This man wants Jesus to cast out a demon from his child. And the father of this poor, afflicted child comes to Jesus, but it's very clear that he comes with doubts. He comes with unbelief. The father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus responds to this man, if you can, he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. You know what the man says in response to Jesus? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Friend, maybe that's the main application of this passage for you this morning. Whatever is afflicting you, whatever is the source of doubt, whatever is causing unbelief, disturbing your soul, Cry out to Jesus in prayer. I believe, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Friends, that's a prayer that Jesus is inclined to answer. Let's go to him now in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for how your word speaks to our unbelief. Lord, more than that, we thank you for the life-giving word about your son Jesus through which you give faith to dead hearts. God, we confess we wrestle with unbelief. And so we join in the prayer of this man from Mark chapter 9. We believe, help our unbelief. God, as we come uh, to your table now, would it be a means of strengthening our faith? 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.